Welcome to Gut Check, a podcast from the Gastroenterology Learning Network. My name is Brian Lacey. I'm a professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, and I'm absolutely delighted to be speaking today with Dr. Kishore Iyer, professor of surgery and pediatrics and a member of the Intestinal Rehabilitation and Transplant Program at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. Dr. Iyer is an expert in the evaluation and management of patients with chronic intestinal failure. Our topic today, short bowel syndrome, is one that is so incredibly important to patients with this life-altering disorder, and also so very important to the gastroenterologists and surgeons and dietitians who evaluate these patients. So Dr. Iyer, welcome. To begin our discussion today and to kind of set the stage for our listeners, could you provide a clear definition of short bowel syndrome? Is the only factor the length of the small intestine remaining or do patients have to have symptoms as well? And do we factor in nutritional issues? Thank you, Dr. Lacey, for the introduction and for inviting me to this podcast on a, on a subject that's very dear to my heart. So coming right to the question, the definition of short bowel syndrome uh, really relates strictly to residual bowel length. Uh, the generally accepted definition for short bowel syndrome uh, refers to residual bowel length of 200 centimeters or less, though there is a move towards suggesting that that is a little generous and, and a stricter criterion would suggest that 150 centimeters of residual small bowel would define somebody as having short bowel. And just to be very clear, this refers only to residual small intestinal length. So we don't really factor in symptoms and we don't factor in nutritional issues. Is that correct? That is an important question. The definition of short bowel as I said, again, strictly refers to length without reference to symptoms or needs for additional therapy. And the common confusion or source of confusion relates to sometimes the term being used interchangeably with intestinal failure. And we can talk a little more about that, but intestinal failure brings in functional consequences of the underlying disease, which in the majority is short bowel syndrome, but there may be other causes of, of intestinal failure. So that's wonderful, Dr. Iyer. Perfect segue because I think there is some confusion about those two terms. Are they equal? Are they analogous? But it sounds like there are some important differences. Um, and would you highlight maybe some of those important differences? Is chronic intestinal failure just a more severe form of short bowel syndrome? Uh, that, that's interesting. The definition of chronic intestinal failure uh, is the one um, published by Loris Peroni and colleagues from the Espen Hahn group. And I'm going to paraphrase here, but chronic intestinal failure refers to the loss of intestinal function to the extent that intravenous supplementation, often in the form of parental nutrition, becomes required. And there's the functional implication. Now, in the majority of cases, chronic intestinal failure is caused by anatomic loss of small bowel length, which we already alluded to as short bowel syndrome. So short bowel syndrome uh, is the cause of chronic intestinal failure in about 60, 70% of cases, thus also telling us that in the remainder, 20 to 30% of cases, uh, chronic intestinal failure may be caused by functional disorders in the intestine, i.e. where gut length is not the problem, function of the residual intestine is the problem. So how common is short bowel syndrome? 
uh, perhaps the, the right question is how uncommon is short bowel syndrome? It is indeed very uh, uncommon. It meets the criteria for orphan disease in the United States. Uh, there, the estimated prevalence uh, ranges widely. There's poor data in this regard, but we now believe that the estimated prevalence in the US is about somewhere between 25,000 to 40,000 patients. Uh, and that probably more accurately refers to the prevalence of intestinal failure. So the actual prevalence of short bowel syndrome likely to be a subset of the whole is probably somewhere around 15,000 patients. The NIH would say uh, one to three per million of the population. It is likely that that's an underestimate. But, but I've, I've already suggested in more ways than one that we actually may not even know the true prevalence other than knowing that it's quite uncommon. And so if we think about this disorder, what are some of the most common risk factors for developing short bowel syndrome? So, so short bowel syndrome relates to anatomic loss of length. And, and, and when I'm talking to people, I like to start with two illustrative examples at the extreme you could have a previously well adult patient, and for the moment, I'm gonna speak only about adults. You could have an adult patient who was perfectly well for perhaps the first 30, 40 years of his life, suddenly develops a, um, a blood clot to his intestine, what we call a, a mesentric thrombus or an embolus from somewhere else, perhaps has underlying cardiac disease with atrial fibrillation, throws off a clot to his mesentric artery, and, and in almost in one fell instant, loses the blood supply to his intestine, loses all of his intestine. That's catastrophic short bowel syndrome occurring immediately. At the, at the other extreme, and gastroenterologists will recognize this very well, is the patient with Crohn's disease spanning perhaps many decades, several surgical resections with surgical attempts at being conservative with resecting bowel, but ultimately gradually with worsening malabsorption, Suddenly one day the patient's not doing well and you look back and you realize now we have a patient with short bowel syndrome. Between those two extremes are several etiologies. The common causes I've already alluded to, mesentric ischemia, Crohn's disease. Uh, and then sadly there is surgical misadventure. Misadventure, I use the term broadly and loosely, but patients who have adhesive obstructions, multiple difficult operations resulting in loss of bowel, then there is uh, trauma in a large metropolitan area like in New York, gunshot wounds, for example. Uh, these are the common causes of, of uh, uh, short bowel syndrome in adult patients. Um, just to touch on this issue for children, congenital causes of loss of bowel obviously become an important cause. Um, midgut valvulus, for example, gastroschisis, for example, and events in the perinatal uh, period, such as necrotizing enterocolitis, leading to loss of bowel length. What's the most accurate way to diagnose this? Can we just rely on surgical records for a measure of how much small bowel is remaining, although sometimes those records are 30 to 40 years old? Or do we need imaging studies? Can we trust a simple small bowel follow-through or MR enterography? Unfortunately, uh, we, we know that surgical records, a good surgical record is the most accurate way to get at residual small bowel length. Woefully, uh, most surgeons who are not thinking of short bowel only tell us what they removed. They do not tell us what was left behind. And I tell patients and colleagues, bowel that was removed is no use. 
to man or beast. What the clinician needs is the residual bowel. So, so the best estimate for residual bowel length is carefully uh, measured at the time of surgery. And there's a convention to this. I use a piece of thread, a piece of silk suture along the anti-mesentric border of unstretched bowel from the duodenal jejunal flexure to the ileocolic junction or the site of any distal anastomosis or a stoma. That is the most accurate measure of residual bowel. Now, there have been reports, there's a famous paper now almost of historic value from Jeremy Nightingale in the UK uh, that suggested you could accurately measure bowel length using well-performed uh, uh, small bowel contrast studies. They used a device called the opisiometer, which is used to measure distances on maps, and they used that to measure bowel length. We've shown that these, rec these are unreliable and, and they're sometimes absent good surgical data. We rely on contrast studies. I still prefer the conventional contrast small bowel series, but, but absent these things, we do the best we can. If I may make one more plea to your audience, if you are in the business of looking after these patients, please either you report or get your surgeon to report residual bowel length carefully measured at operation. Wonderful. Hopefully we can change practice moving ahead, not record what was removed, but instead record what is left. So thinking about the patient with short bowel syndrome, do symptoms develop solely due to rapid transit through the shortened length of small bowel or other factors are at play? That's a, that's a great question. It's a difficult question. Certainly the dominant um, underlying problem relates simply, we focus on length um, and, and I don't, I don't want to expand on that, but really what is happening is loss of absorptive surface area. So certainly the overriding symptoms of diarrhea or increased ostomy output and GI losses refer really to loss of length and perhaps more importantly, loss of absorptive surface area. But, but really alongside this comes um, additional symptoms related to malabsorption, related to rapid transit, um, GI discomfort, abdominal pain, sometimes periods of abdominal distension, uh, inability to tolerate a big meal, and you can imagine the rest. So most of the symptoms do relate to loss of length, but there can be additional symptoms that might relate to, to related pathology or to associated complications. Thinking about some of these complications, can you list some of the most common complications we might anticipate? These can mostly uh, be determined on a first principles basis. If, if we say loss of absorptive surface area is the primary problem, diarrhea or increased GI losses is the attendant first result. Now, unrecognized diarrhea improperly, inadequately managed diarrhea or inadequately managed stoma losses result in dehydration and its downstream consequences, such as uh, thirst, dehydration, acute kidney injury. I, unfortunately, in my practice, 
I see a lot of patients with uh, presenting for the first time with intestinal failure, and I'm deliberately using the term intestinal failure rather than short bowel, but, but with intestinal failure or short bowel who have for the first time, uh, who have under-recognized or unrecognized uh, subclinical kidney injury likely arising as a consequence of unrecognized diarrhea and appropriate repletion. So, so there's a preventable complication of the, of the short bowel syndrome. Uh, other things, weight loss, features of malnutrition, malnutrition related both to mac macronutrient uh, depletion and indeed to micronutrients, skin abnormalities, loss of uh, hair, nail problems. And then there are the more obscure but well-recognized complications uh, in, in select patients with short bowel. For example, depending on the anatomic region of the bowel that is lost, um, you can almost predict what is likely to happen. So the patient who has terminal ileal resection with retained jejunum is likely to have B12 deficiency and a predictable macrocytic anemia. Uh, the patient who has a high jejunostomy alongside lost his ileum, B12 deficiency, but likely to have an overall hypersecretory state and, and be prone to diarrhea. In contrast, the patient, let's say with residual jejunum, a small limited amount of residual jejunum with retained colon is at risk for kidney stones and kidney stones primarily related to hyperoxaluria and, and oxalate stones. And the pathology, pathophysiology is really quite obvious if only we think about it, um, right? Un, unbound oxalate delivered to the colon, converted to oxalate ion is absorbed, leading to hyperoxaluria. And a good screening technique to do is, is to uh, check for serum oxalate or oxalate in the urine. So correction of hyperoxaluria and prevention of oxalate stones in the patient with short bowel who has retained colon is really to ensure delivery of adequate calcium in the GI lumen. Don't be guided by serum calcium. You need luminal calcium to bind unbound oxalate. That prevents, and I tell patients, just take a thumbs every day and you'll thank me for it. Thank you, that's wonderful. Great review of physiology and complications. Now, before we jump ahead to discussing treatment, you wrote a really interesting article highlighting kind of an overall lack of awareness about short bowel syndrome and chronic intestinal failure. Could you just comment on that for our listeners? Uh, absolutely, Dr. Lacey. And this is, uh, I, this is a recent pivot of mine. Um, after doing 20 years of surgery and transplant, I've pivoted to health systems research. And I tell people as I peel each successive layer of the intestinal failure onion, I'm forced to cry ever more. Uh, because I think what has happened with intestinal failure care in the United States is the perfect uh, trifecta of a rare disease, lack of expertise and decentralization. So we have a rare and complex disease. Now we're speaking about short bowel, so referring to short bowel, a really rare and, and predictably complex disease that requires complex therapies. If you think of a population prevalence of two, three per million, you could easily imagine even busy gastroenterologists going through several years of their practice not encountering one such patient. 
There are many states in the union, unfortunately, that do not have uh, good multidisciplinary expertise in intestinal failure. We, and, and this is a very serious problem. These patients often go from pillar to post trying to find centers that can look after them. And Dr. Manpreet Mundi, um, uh, David Mercer and I were involved with a group that recently published on looking at the characteristics of intestinal failure across the United States on the basis of, of a large third-party claims database analysis. And what we found was really quite disheartening. The patients have to travel very long distances for their care or in further work, we are now uh, understanding they really get suboptimal care. One of the things we've done, if I may make a pitch here, is, is to try and address that problem. I've launched an online learning platform called the Lift Echo Project, Learn Intestinal Failure Teleecho. And it runs as a twice a month for adults, one hour session each time. It's an online Zoom-based um, uh, it's it's a it's a uh, uh, it's based on the very popular Echo platform from Dr. Sanjeev Arora in New Mexico, and and this is now applied to intestinal failure. We have people sign in at this point in time from six or seven continents. They present a anonymized case. I facilitate discussion, and we have a collection of didactics now, about seventy five or so, archived on our website, all at no cost, and we provide free CME. Thank you for allowing me to make that pitch. Wonderful. This is an educational podcast, so this is great. So for our listeners today, if interested, the Lift Echo Project, Google that, and you'll get plugged in. Be sure to join us for part two of this podcast as doctors Lacey and Ayer discuss treatment options for patients with short bowel syndrome.